This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Tanya Mosley with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, actor Laura Dern. Before she starred in Citizen Ruth, Blue Velvet, Jurassic Park, and before winning an Oscar for Marriage Story, she watched Martin Scorsese direct her mother, Diane Ladd, in the 1974 film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Dern was about seven, and because of her parents, movie sets were always a part of her life. I think they said the first set they brought me to, I was like three weeks old, and they used the dresser drawer of the motel um, <laughs> as, my, as my crib um, on a film they were working on. Dern's new book is a series of conversations with her mother about their family and the movie industry. We'll also hear from playwright Jeremy O'Harris. He'll talk about the Broadway production of the Lorraine Hansberry play, The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window his rise to fame, and his debut production, Slave Play. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's fresh air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. Terry has our first interview. My guest Laura Dern has been a professional actor since she was about 11. She grew up in a movie world. Her parents are actors Diane Ladd and Bruce Dern. When Laura was a child, she was an extra in the film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which co-starred her mother and was directed by Martin Scorsese. She wasn't in the typical kids' films or teen films. No, she co-starred in David Lynch's film Blue Velvet and starred with Nicolas Cage and her mother in Lynch's Wild at Heart. For the film Rambling Rose, she was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress, and her mother was nominated for Best Supporting Actress the first and only time a mother and daughter were nominated for the same film. They made a very convincing mother and daughter in the HBO series Enlightened, for which Dern received a Golden Globe. Dern won a primetime Emmy for her performance in HBO's Big Little Lies and an Oscar for her role in the movie Marriage Story. Now she's written a new book that's a series of conversations with her mother. It grew out of her mother's diagnosis of lung disease, Dern and Ladd believe the lung disease was caused by exposure to pesticides sprayed on farms in the area Ladd lives in. The doctor gave her six months to live, but said it might help increase her lung capacity if she took walks. So Laura Dern took her mother on 15-minute walks every day, in spite of her mother's protests that it was too exhausting and painful. To make the time more interesting... Darren basically interviewed her mother and had a long series of conversations, which she recorded for the sake of her own memory and to give to her children. Those conversations have been adapted into the new book, Honey, Baby, Mine. Laura Dern, welcome back to Fresh Air. What a pleasure to have you back on the show. How is your mother now? I mean, she'd been given six months to live. I know it's been beyond that, but how far beyond that has it been? It's been almost four years, and as she would tell you if she were here with us today, she says, and instead of dying, I did two movies, a TV show, and wrote a book with my daughter. So (laughs) I love it. She she said, that's why they call it practicing medicine, Laura. I relate to your book as an interviewer, and what I mean is I ask questions of people in interviews. I wouldn't dream of asking them 
in another context. Like if we were at a dinner party, I wouldn't ask nearly the kinds of questions, the personal questions that, that I ask in an interview. And I feel like in these conversations you had with your mother, because you had this plan to like use this as an opportunity to engage her during the walks, but also to learn more about her and share more about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is something that you asked her on these walks that you don't think you otherwise might have asked her? That was important for you to hear about. Well, my mom says, we both thought I was dying, so we spilled the beans. (laughs) And most of us, within our own family particularly, don't spill the beans. Or we wait till it's too late and say, oh, I wish I'd asked them this or that. And what shocked me as I would start to engage her in topics is how little I had asked this only child, single mother, who raised me an only child. And yet, I hadn't asked her, why did you, from this tiny town in Mississippi, think, I'm going to be an actor, that's what I want to do? What What was the first movie that inspired you? Who were the actors you fell in love with? Given that I became an actor as well, and we worked together, as you mentioned a number of times, wouldn't that be a natural conversation? It never came up. I want to play a scene you did with your mother in the HBO series, Enlightened. I'm not going to set up the whole story. I will just say that um, you had basically a, a ragey, nervous breakdown at work and you Mm -hmm. go off to rehab in Hawaii where you learn to meditate and you return home changed by it. You've learned to meditate to calm the rage and anger and to center yourself and focus and you come home with an exercise that you're supposed to write a letter to somebody who you have difficulty communicating with. So you come home And your mother, who's played by your mother, Diane Ladd, is there. And here's the scene where you start reading her the letter that you were told to write in rehab. Mother, they have asked me to write a letter to the person I have the most difficulty communicating with. It was not hard for me to decide who that person is. How long is this going to take? Do you have somewhere to be? No. I just want to know how long this is going to take. Uh, not long. I'm, I've just got to read you what's on these papers. Well, I can read, honey. But I'm supposed to read it to you, Mom. That's the point. Okay, Amy. You and I have been through a lot. Dad's death, all of Bethany's issues, my divorce, money problems. You name it, we have dealt with it. I know I have disappointed you in many ways. And yes, there have been times that you've disappointed me. But I want to change that. And I truly believe that we can change. And if we can change, anything is possible. If we can change, the whole world can change for the better. I don't know what that means, honey. Mom, can you just let me finish, and we'll talk after. Is this what they asked you to do up there? One of the things, yeah. And what medications did they give you? Mom, nothing. I'm off my medication. Well, why on earth? Mom, I don't want to talk about my medications. I'm here reading you. I just want to be sure that you are okay. Okay, I just... Look, don't get irritated with me because I just just want what's best for you. That is all I have ever wanted. Such a beautiful (laughs) scene about miscommunication and not understanding each other and having like a different approach to expressing things. Um, When you work with your mother, as you've done several times, does it make you self-conscious because you know each other so well? Um, It's not like a professional relationship because you have, you know, the deepest personal relationship anybody has. Well, first of all, thank you for playing that scene. I'm just smiling and cracking up over here as I'm listening to it because it is the extraordinary writing of Mike White who, you know, just... He's great, yes. ...navigated (laughs) the complexity of that dynamic, as you mentioned. And, um, you know, in the book, in our conversations, my mom talked about 
the joy she had remembering the first time we worked together on Wild at Heart, um, the first film we did together, and we had to do this very emotional scene. And she remembered me preparing for the scene at one end of the set and her at the other, both doing our work, both having trained separately as professionals, you know, not engaged in that together. Um, And then coming together to do this very emotional scene. And the camera rolls and David Lynch called action and it's very emotional and I'm crying in her arms. And he said, cut. And mom describes us pulling away and her looking in my eyes and realizing that she knew exactly what had brought up the emotion in me. And I looked at her and felt I knew the emotion and the pain she was expressing in the scene. Both very personal, both never discussed, but we just know each other so well. And so at that moment, we started laughing hysterically right after this big crying scene. And mom describes the whole crew looking at us as if we were nuts. But it was such a personal, intimate, beautiful thing to share, the kind of knowing and bringing it into this professional space, but also the boundaries of that professional space, that it's sort of this unspoken language. Or so you wouldn't ask your mother, what were you thinking of when you made that scene? Exactly. Yeah. And yet we knew. But you and knew. yet we knew yeah. and never discussed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a child, was it confusing to see your parents in roles playing people who were not like them? Um, was it confusing to know, like, who's my real parent and who's somebody who they're playing at being? I think... I was literally born into it. I think they said the first set they brought me to, I was like three weeks old, and they used the dresser drawer of the motel <laughs> um, as my as my crib um, on a film they were working on. And I think I I would watch them transform so much that it clearly was their job. So I think I never felt the confusion, I felt almost part of it because I had the good fortune of watching them. Although when I was five or six, my grandma and I were watching like a movie of the week and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte was playing. And we're halfway into the movie and I think my grandma had forgotten that my father was involved in flashback as the young lover, and there is a shot at the end of the movie of Betty Davis holding a hat box at the top of a staircase, and something rolls out of that hat box, and it is something that was clearly no no longer an entire human Bruce Turn, but just the head of him, <laughs> and I was hysterical, needless to say. And my grandma had to get my dad on the phone to explain that, like, you know, he had his head and he was okay and it's just a movie. And even in middle school, I remember some kids teasing me because one of them said their dad had said that they couldn't have a play date with me because my dad killed John Wayne. Oh, in the movie The Cowboys. Yeah. And I was like, uh, well, (laughs) yes, he played a character who kills John (laughs) Wayne in a movie, but that's not my father. So I remember even at 12 trying to sort of defend and justify that they're not their roles. Um, And I didn't love that other people were confused. But luckily, I wasn't terribly confused. You you wrote, I think, in the book or said it in an interview, I don't remember which, that um, you felt protected as a kid because, I mean, your parents separated when you were two, but you felt protected because your father was known as the guy who killed John Wayne in a movie, John Wayne's character. And that gave him a kind of, you know, bravado or or toughness, like, don't mess with this guy. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, for all that, you know, all of us has, have discussed as as women in our workplace environments, you know, we've all had to navigate so much. And I was in, you know, especially starting work so young, very potentially uncomfortable or even dangerous circumstances. And I know people knowing my parents and certainly guys knowing my dad. Um 
I think, were careful with me. You know, they knew not to mess with Bruce's kid. Uh, and I, I think I was very, yeah, blessed. So um, thanks, Dad, for playing bad guys in Westerns. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest is actor Laura Dern. Her new book is a series of conversations with her mother, actor Diane Ladd. It's called Honey Baby Mine. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, MassMutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. MassMutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a MassMutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short- or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Laura Dern. She starred in Blue Velvet, Jurassic Park, Enlightened, Big Little Lies, and won an Oscar for Marriage Story. Her new memoir is a series of conversations with her mother, actor Diane Ladd. It's called Honey Baby Mine. One of your early films as a teenager was called Smooth Talk. It's based on a Joyce Carol Oates story. And you were a teenager then when you played the part, and you played the role of a teenage girl who's kind of feeling her sexuality for the first time and is seeing that as like the most valuable, noticeable part of herself. So after Smooth Talk, you made Blue Velvet. And in order to make Blue Velvet, you had to drop out of UCLA after being there for two days. You, <laughs> you asked permission to basically take a leave to shoot the film. They not only told you no, they said like, whoa, why would you want to make such a weird movie anyways? And by the way, don't come back. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to make this yeah. movie, don't come back. Um, yeah. uh, do you know what made David Lynch think of you? Because, you know, as you've said, you play the role of somebody really innocent within a movie where... Dennis Hopper plays somebody who is so perverse and so sadistic and so just kind of twisted. And Isabella mm-hmm. Rossellini plays a very, you know, weird, eccentric character. It's it's a very dreamlike, poetic mm-hmm. movie, but a very, very dark one, even though you're the innocent in it. Um, mm-hmm. So what made him think about you? I don't know why, but I walked in a room to audition When he met me, he says he just knew. And then he asked that I have lunch with he and Kyle MacLachlan to kind of, you know, see our connection or chemistry at Bob's Big Boy. And um, (laughs) sparing no extravagance. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. There, you know, it was clear. The three of us, I think it was clear the three of us were going to be family for the rest of our lives. It was wild. Um, it was just such a union. And um, I held something instinctually for him that was what he needed for his movie, and he trusted it. My understanding is you weren't allowed on set during the scenes where um, Dennis Hopper's character is acting especially like perverse. Um, so you didn't really know what was going on in that part of the movie. What was your reaction when you saw it? Well, my first reaction actually took place during filming, which is 
Yeah, I think even if I wasn't a minor, David would have been very protective of me not seeing the other world that Jeffrey, Kyle McLaughlin's character, was entering. I was only in this other part of the story and the innocence of like, we're going to play detective and, you know, discover things. So I was like curious about the dark side, but never went deep into it. And I think he never wanted me to know it. And then on camera, when we at the end of the movie, enter the apartment and see bloodshed and horror in that apartment, um, that was on film. And I think David purposely wanted me to discover that on film. He kind of let me know a sense of what I might experience. Um, just like the scene where, you know, Isabella's walking naked down the street and I right. see that horror for the first time, you know, of, of what's happening and why is she intimate with this boy I'm, I'm liking. And, you know, I, I think that was quite brilliant of David to sort of keep me on the outskirts of all of that. But then seeing the movie for the first time, we became like family. And so I had time in the edit room and I saw certain scenes. But seeing the whole film, I want to say, certainly the first time we saw it with an audience, David, Kyle, and I sat together at Telluride Film Festival. Um, and I mean, I don't know. This is where the weird stuff of, of being raised by artists in childhood really serves me. I was laughing at, I guess, all the wrong or totally appropriate moments from David's perspective. I felt glee and horror and um, fascination. I found it spiritual and esoteric and traumatizing. Um, but I wasn't afraid of David's work. I want to play an, another formative scene from your career. And th this is Citizen Ruth. This is one of your early films. I'm forgetting what year it is. Um, do you remember? Like, Maybe 96? Yeah, that, sound, that sounds right. right. Um, so you, you play somebody who's had several children that were taken away from her. Um, you, you're you're dealing with a lot, and there's a possibility of you going to prison. Meanwhile, you find out you're pregnant. You definitely want an abortion. You're confident you want an abortion. A Christian family takes you under their wing, and the woman, the Christian woman, takes you to a center that you think is going to help you get an abortion, but it's a, a Christian anti-abortion center, which you find out as the woman who I think is a, a nurse is talking to you, and mm -hmm. uh, then the doctor comes in. So uh, let's hear that scene, and you're you're trying so hard to convince them that you know you really really want this abortion. I need to get an abortion. Let me just ask you something, Ruth. Have you ever really taken the time to think about what it means to have an abortion? Yeah, um, it means that I don't have to go to jail, and it means I don't have to have another baby, and. It means that I can start getting my life together. I, 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 I. Don't you think that's all just a little selfish? Isn't there someone else here you need to consider? Someone who's living inside you right now, just waiting to be born. Now, when you have your baby, what would you like to have? Would you like to have a little boy or a little girl? What do you, what do you mean? Well, we're just talking here. Let's say you decided to have the child. Uh, would you like it to be a little boy like this one? Maybe a girl. A girl. <laughs> yes. And what are we going to name this little pumpkin? Are we going to call it uh, uh, Mary or, or Sally or Susie or... Uh... Tanya. Tanya! Baby Tanya. <laughs> but I can't have a baby right now. I don't want another baby. Oh, man, you don't understand. I'm in a really bad, bad situation right now. I mean bad. We know it's hard, Ruth. Very hard. But you have to face reality. If you feel as though you can't raise Tanya, we can put you on to an excellent adoption agency. Yes. What's the matter? Are you people, Jeff? I said I want an abortion! <laughs> okay, we hear you. <laughs> 
I neglected to mention your character is also addicted to drugs and huffs paint. Um, you were raised Catholic. Your grandmother, your mother's mother, was very Catholic. Your mother is is or was very Catholic. Um, but by the time you were 10, I think, you had gone to an, an ERA, an Equal Rights Amendment rally, and you decided you were pro-choice. Um, so this movie kind of fit with your perspective, but how did that did that come into conflict with your mother or your grandmother's, if she was still alive, uh, Catholicism? My amazing mother and grandmother would say that to be religious, to be spiritual, uh, means to be endlessly supportive of anyone's rights, human rights, to choose their destiny. And I have been raised pro-choice and Catholic since birth. Interesting. Um, And I am very blessed and have met nuns who are pro-choice and many, many people within that community even. My mother is very open-minded and I learned to meditate when I was eight years old, and she has, you know, explored many spiritual paths as well as being raised Catholic. But even for my grandmother, um, you know, who had her own opinions of the choices she would make for her life, but always honored um, a woman's choice, um, a family's choice. So that was huge in our in my upbringing. So that clip gives us a little taste of the kind of anger and rage you are capable of projecting on screen, (laughs) it gets greatly amplified as time goes by and is especially apparent in Big Little Lies. And I'm not going to play a clip from that because when you get the ragiest in Big Little Lies, you also use the most obscenities. So um, it wouldn't play well on radio. Um, Could get us into a lot of trouble. But like, you don't strike me as somebody who like breaks out into rages. Um, so what do you draw on to get into that kind of um, explosive frame of mind? As I said to our incredible director, one of my favorite humans and best of friends who passed away recently, Jean-Marc Vallée, our extraordinary director of of Big Little Lies as well as the film Wild that Reese Witherspoon and I also did together – Jean-Marc and I were talking about the character's rage, Renata, and he was talking about, you know, where it would come from. And I said, you take any woman off the street who has not had rage expressed and she is ready to play this part. Years of bottling up anger and trying to say the right thing. Um or be around explosive people and try to calm the storm, you definitely, you know, have so much. And by the way, if you watch the news, you can play Renata. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think I mean, it, it outrages you so much. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to end with a clip from the role you won an Oscar for. So this is a scene from the 2019 movie Marriage Story. In this movie, you play a divorce lawyer, and you're the lawyer for Scarlett Johansson's character. And in the scene we're about to hear, you, the lawyer, is helping her practice her answer to questions that she may be asked in a deposition. So before we hear the scene, I want you to talk about inhabiting this character and what she means to you. Because she she talks a great feminist line. She also you know, intentionally dresses in a very sexy way in court. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's a kind of complicated figure herself. So can you, can you talk a little bit about, you, you know, how you see this character and what it was like to play her? I'll just share briefly the context, which is that both Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig are like family to me now. And I had And, and, and she on... directed you in Little Women and, and he directed exactly. Marriage Story and wrote and it so too, we were... right? Exactly. And in terms of this character, we just had so much fun, not only dreaming up, but witnessing the business of divorce. Um, Noah met several divorce lawyers, as did I, and the context being how to work the system for your client, how to work the judicial system, 
how to present as well as who you are in the gut and like the business of kind of um, growing discord because it makes more money. It prolongs a divorce. All of those things kind of fed into who this character would be. And it was, oh my God, the time of my life. Amazing Mark Bridges, the costumer who is such a genius. I'd worked on a Paul Thomas Anderson film, The Master, with him. And he, alongside Noah, just helped invent who she would be. And it was the time of my life. I loved playing this character. Well, let's hear the clip. Uh, And again, this is Scarlett Johansson's character rehearsing being deposed for the divorce hearing. And you play her lawyer, who's coaching her. We'll hear Scarlett Johansson speak first. Laura Dern, what a great pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. And please send my best wishes to your mother for her health. She doesn't know me. We've never talked, but um, still send her my best wishes. (laughs) Thank you so much. And she was so thrilled I was getting to come speak to you today about our book and our experience together. And I just, if I may say, as one shout out, The more we talked and the deeper and more complicated of subjects we shared, my mother got better and better and better. So talking and sharing your truth physically heals a person. And that was our experience. So I hope others will do the same. It's been a great gift. Thank you, Laura Dern. Be well, and I wish your mother well. Thank you. Okay. And here's Laura Dern and Scarlett Johansson with Scarlett Johansson speaking first. You know, he can be an ass. I'm going to stop you there. When you do this for real, don't ever say that. People don't accept mothers who drink too much wine and yell at their child and call him an ass. I get it. I do it too. We can accept an imperfect dad. Let's face it. The idea of a good father was only invented like 30 years ago. Before that, fathers were expected to be silent and absent and unreliable and selfish. And we can all say we want them to be different. But on some basic level, we accept them. We love them for their fallibilities. But people absolutely don't accept those same failings in mothers. We don't accept it structurally and we don't accept it spiritually. Because the basis of our Judeo-Christian whatever is Mary, mother of Jesus. And she's perfect. She's a virgin who gives birth, unwaveringly supports her child and holds his dead body when he's gone. And the dad isn't there. He didn't even do the God is in heaven. God is the father and God didn't show up. So you have to be perfect and Charlie can be a and it doesn't matter. You will always be held to a different, higher standard. That is the way it is. That was Laura Dern with Scarlett Johansson from the film Marriage Story. Laura Dern's new book of conversations with her mother, actor Diane Ladd, is titled Honey Baby Mine. Coming up, award-winning playwright and actor Jeremy O'Harris. He'll talk about the production of the Lorraine Hansberry play, The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window, which is currently on Broadway, as well as his rise to fame with his debut production, Slave Play, and his goals to diversify theater. This is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Award-winning playwright Jeremy O'Harris has always felt a kinship to Lorraine Hansberry. She was the first Black woman to have a play, A Raisin in the Sun, performed on Broadway, and she's often described as one of the most significant playwrights of the 20th century. 
Well, this spring, Harris stepped in as a producer to give one of Hansberry's lesser-known works a revival on Broadway. The sign in Sidney Brewstein's window was written by Hansberry shortly before she died of pancreatic cancer at the age of 34. This latest revival stars Oscar Isaac and Rachel Brosnahan. It premiered at the Brooklyn Academy of Music before Harris helped bring the show this spring to Broadway. The play raises questions about art, political corruption, homosexuality, and interracial love. Like Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun, Jeremy O'Harris's debut on Broadway was also a smash hit. His work Slave Play, which ran on Broadway in 2019, garnered 12 Tony Award nominations. Harris's other works include Daddy, a play about a young Black artist who gets into a relationship with an older, wealthy collector. Harris also co-wrote the 2021 film Zola with director Janixa Bravo and served as a co-producer for season two of the HBO show Euphoria. He guest stars as a fashion designer on season two of the Netflix series Emily in Paris. Harris is a recipient of the Lorraine Hansberry Playwriting Award and the Paula Vogel Playwriting Award. Jeremy O'Harris, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. Jeremy, I read that it was actually a text exchange between you and actress Rachel Brosnahan that motivated you <laughs> to step in to get um, this play onto Broadway after it ended its run in Brooklyn, where it actually done pretty well. Why was it important for you to get it shown on Broadway? Well, I mean, one, selfishly, I wanted to see it. Um, I had seen a production of it in Chicago when Ann Kaufman, the phenomenal director, did it there. And I had just imagined that because such, you know, huge, huge stars were in this play that for me is so huge, it would have immediately gone to Broadway right afterwards. So because I was doing a writer's residency, I wasn't able to see the show um, before it closed. And when I found out it wasn't going to Broadway, I immediately like sort of jumped in the action because I felt like the world needed to see this play. And also, I needed to see it because I wanted to see it with Rachel and Oscar. You know, this moment that we're in, yes, this Lorraine Hansberry um, play is on Broadway. And at the same time, her work is being banned in places like Oklahoma. And the banning of other creative works by Black artists are being banned. How do you see this moment as it relates to those urgent themes that you think about um, that this Brewstein play actually brings forth. So I'm from Virginia. I'm from Martinsville, Virginia, a really small town in Virginia that you probably never heard of unless you follow, you know, mid-century modern furniture that stopped being made in America in 1992. You know, I was in a factory town that dried up. And one of my only saving graces in that town is I had a great teacher named Candace Owen Williams who had a huge, huge collection of great, great plays. And great, great novels. She taught me English, and she taught me drama, and she taught me dance. And she gave me a pathway out of of dire circumstances. She gave me a language for the politics that I would grow to have. And in this moment when I'm seeing our country in this dire need of, you know, reading comprehension and politics that do not waver, I am seeing the right do the thing they need to do to make sure that we all become opioid addicts who never leave our small towns. They are taking away our books. They're taking away our ability to dream. And so when I see that I have a chance to, you know, work with amazing people to potentially get 1,500 people more a week to go home and tell everyone they know about a little play called The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window— that that might maybe spark for one of those people that those fifteen hundred meet, um, the 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 gumption to go and buy it at their local bookstore or get it from their library and read it and spread the politic this woman so like you know vibrantly held on to as she was dying in this in nineteen sixty four. I know that we're doing our job. We're doing it right, you know, because like that, 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 that can shift something in some small town, some small place. Like that's why, that's why I do theater is to shift the politics of the communities that come in contact with the plays that I'm putting on. Jeremy, when the highly acclaimed work Slave Play of yours came out in 2019, it was called one of the most provocative works to show up on Broadway at the time. Slave Play follows three interracial couples, present day, and three acts. And over the course of six days, on a plantation, they undergo something called antebellum sexual performance therapy. 
And they are there because black partners no longer feel sexual attraction to their white partners. What you are asking the audience to do is ask themselves something basic but very profound, a series of questions. Can black people in intimate partnerships with white people feel safe to say how they need to be seen? Um, And would their white partners be able and willing to comply? Or does the legacy of slavery forever alter the power dynamics in these sexual relationships between black and white people? I am really curious, Jeremy. It's been several years now. You're deep in other projects, but how have your answers to these questions maybe evolved since you originally wrote Slave Play? It is very interesting to me that we still um, are meeting the play through the entry point that I laid out for everyone, right? Like I laid out an entry point wherein the provocation was that we're asking these questions about the entanglement of black Americans, white Americans, and brown Americans through the lens of sex and sexuality. But sex and sexuality was just a metaphor for every interaction. Mm -hmm. And in this moment, we are still seeing that there is a great discomfort in this country with asking ourselves in public, in mixed company, what the responsibilities white Americans have to their entangled history with slavery, right? We've never asked um, ourselves how black people have to deal with that history. We just expect that they'll figure it out themselves. But the minute that white Americans are asked to make sense of that history is the minute that there are mass book bans across the nation. Yeah. I mean, so really what you're saying, because you do write about sex a lot, but you believe that it reveals so much more about that just our private, our desires. You believe it gives us a deeper lens into who we are. So those same questions, like can Black people be in intimate partnerships with white people and feel safe to say what they need and how they need to be seen, you can just take away the word intimate and say Black people in relations with white people. Can they feel safe enough to express? And also, I mean, you work at you work in radio, right? Like you have intimate relationships with your boss. You go to them and tell them, this is the thing I most want in my life. Like, listen to me, like affirm this. Right. And most of your maybe your bosses are black, but generally in a place like NPR, they would be white bosses and they have to be, like examine your vulnerability, hold your vulnerability in the way that a lover might or a partner might and say, like, I affirm this idea or I don't, you know, or whatever it is, you know, like you have to be seen. You have to be heard by your partners in a lot of different places. And I think it would be easier to write off some of the questions in slave play if I just made a workplace comedy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's harder to write those things off when you see it look like your bedroom. Okay, let's talk about Daddy. It was one of your first melodramas that you actually wrote before slave play. And it's about a young Black artist who gets into a twisted relationship with a wealthy older collector. And this idea came to you when you were in your early 20s after a real encounter. Can you share the PG version of this story? I knew a lot of boys who were being wooed or were dating multimillionaires or billionaires when I first moved to L.A. And I I remember I'd go to their parties and I'd be like, so like wowed that these boys were in these houses that were like, multi-million dollar houses was like people who literally like ran our country you know both culturally and socially and politically and I was like what do you have to do to be one of these boys and like the minute I was met with the opportunity by a very attractive very charming man I was immediately like no (laughs) no thank you (laughs) and he was like what I was like yeah no thank you I don't want to do that because my brain immediately went to like a what would my mom say um not because I'm not because I'm queer but because like he was older than her (laughs) you know what I mean I was like this is weird Mm -hmm. And B, um, because I think in the back of my mind, I was like, I don't want a daddy. I am my own daddy, you know? Um, and I think that's because for so long in my childhood, when growing up as a in a single-parent home, I had had to be the man of the house for so long. It was, like, fun to dream about or imagine that some man would sweep me and my mom off our feet and, like, save the day. But I think I had done the job of doing that in my own way for so long that I was like, no, it's too late. I have to be the one that does it. I mean, this is really powerful because this thought that came to you, like, wait a minute, I don't want a savior. I want to be my own savior. I want to be my own daddy. It helped you confront something about your own relationship with the role of father. You never actually knew your biological father. 
Nope. I only met him once when I was eight. And he did the the worst thing you can do to a child when they're eight, which is tell them you'll come back and see them again and then never do it. Mm, do you remember the meeting? Where I were do. You? I, yeah. It was in Virginia. And my mom had sort of worked it out because I've been asking about him a lot. And so then he came to visit. He came with his wife. And uh, they were on leave from the military. And he gave me a present. And we like hung out. And we took pictures. And then he told me that he would come back for me um, and, like, the next day and take me on a trip with him to where he was stationed at the time. And he literally just never showed back up. He's never called. He's never texted. He's never written. Your mom had you when she was pretty young. She was 19. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she was a single mom, as you mentioned. Was she primarily a beautician growing up? No, she worked all sorts of jobs. She worked at um she worked at like a tire factory. She worked at a like a factory that like did textiles. Um she worked at a furniture factory and then she worked as a hairstylist. And that mm-hmm. was her primary job from middle school on. But you know, in order to become a hairstylist you have to go to school for that and that costs money and time and you know, when you're a single mom, you don't have the time or the luxury to do that, you know. Did she work in a salon when she was a She did. And then she owned her own salon too. Did you ever visit? Did you spend time I worked, there? I worked at the salon, and I, I oh, will always say do? this. Oh, my God. So I swept up hair. I took um, orders and calls and worked the front desk. I basically was annoying. But the thing that I'm really upset was that she wanted to teach me how to do hair. And I was so afraid of being perceived as gay for doing hair that I didn't learn. And... I still to this day am frustrated because I don't think I would have been as like financially dire through my 20s had I just known how to like braid hair. Did she want to teach you when you were a teenager? And were you out then? I didn't come out until after the end of my first year of college. And I think it had more to do with just the fact that like there wasn't enough representation of what queerness actually was. Like all we had was like Will and Grace. And in Will and Grace, like if they kissed a girl, they'd be like, ew, gross, yuck. And I was like, I like kissing girls sometimes, you know? So I was like, maybe I'm not gay. It wasn't until I went to college. I was like, no, 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 (laughs) you are. Um, You definitely are. Um, But again, that's because we had such a like, um, binary understanding of what queerness was and also any sort of exploration because I, I think I would have explored many, many times, but all that sense of exploration was like completely um, stamped out. There was no like pathway to exploration because to explore was to confirm, right? Mm. And to confirm was death. And mm. I think that's what's really dark about this moment was that right when people like my niece, who's 12, right? My niece was like 12 and told us all that like like, they wanted to have she, they pronouns and, uh, like, you know, didn't want to identify as straight. Like, that 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 sort of exploration or, or um, expression at that age um, would have been so detrimental to my, like, my bodily health, my social health. And it wasn't an option. Yeah. It wasn't an option. And now, right when it's slowly becoming an option in a place like Danville, Virginia, people are people are getting freaked out and feel threatened by it and are trying to put our kids back in the closet and make everyone afraid again of exploring, of expressing. Is it true that you'd also help your mother dress? Would you pick out her outfits or help her oh, choose always. I still do that. I still do that to this day. Yeah. You'd also sometimes put on her clothing and play around in front of the mirror. I'm just curious, what, what did her clothing represent for you? I think the same thing that all clothing represented, just like a chance to tell a new story about myself. You know what I mean? And I loved making characters. Like, it was, like, truly a character thing for me um, and a play thing for me, um, which is one of the reasons why I I feel so protective of, like, everyone's right and 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 everyone should feel the right and the thrill of dressing because dressing like the minute today i'm wearing i'm wearing it's hot in new york and i'm wearing a full suit and a turtleneck because that's the story i wanted to tell about myself today that i'm the type of person who walks around in new york and doesn't feel the heat (laughs) yes okay what color is it um, it is a striped Versace suit. It's um, it's like a wine and a navy blue with a white stripe. And then the turtleneck is like a sort of see-through, sheer um, black Margiela. 
Why do you love working in theater so much? And why has it become your main form of expression? I think it's linked to the idea that I wanted to be a preacher at one point. You know, like, um, it's a community-based practice. And that's what, you know, it's a community-based practice minus the religion. You know, you get to see the faces of the people you're impacting with your work. Um, You get to talk with them. You get to see how how the conversation in your work move through them every night. And I think that that's vital to a vital democracy is to have um, watering holes where people actually are being forced to think, debate, and talk together in a room, not online, where you can actually see their affect, where you can make sense of their word, where you can meaning make together, not in a silo. That's why I make theater. But you also feel it's just as important to step into these other realms of art and making. Why is that? You could focus solely on one thing, but you've decided to take these other avenues of expression as well. <laughs> I'm a Gemini. I don't know. I like <laughs> when, like, I mean, it's mainly theater, theater. And also I'm like, it's like I'm poly with art. It's like, it's like, yes, my main, my anchor is theater, but that might mean that because I love theater so much, I'll walk down a hallway into a bedroom with music and write seven songs, one of which might end up in a play, two of which might end up on a friend's album, you know? Um, But each of the things I do comes back and inspires the theater even more. And I think that if I was um, completely monogamous with theater, I'd get bored with it. Um, So me and theater have an arrangement. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy O'Harris, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Jeremy O'Harris is an actor, producer, playwright, and philanthropist. He most recently helped get the revival of Lorraine Hansberry's play, The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window, playing on Broadway. Fresh Air Weekend is produced this week by Thea Chaloner. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salad, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All that sitting and swiping... Your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.